Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. And of course, the reason why it wasn't quite the perfect day yesterday for Roger Charlton was because he was beaten by his former assistant, Daniel Kubler, and his wife, Claire, one of the most upwardly mobile training partnerships in the UK. And I promise you, Dan and Claire were booked before Astro King won the Cambridge yesterday. Here they are alongside Racing Post, Jonathan Harding. Welcome to you both. And it is, it's lovely to see you. I mean, that was... That was the script perfectly read, wasn't it? Yeah, it was incredible. Uh, what a day uh, and what a horse. Uh, just phenomenal to have a horse like that in the yard uh, and given us all a lot of fun, hasn't he? Um, in the morning before the race, he was rearing around his stable like a little kid. He was in great form. So, so just wheel back, Dad, and tell us the story of how you, how you got him and why you got him. Well... We'd bought a horse a couple of years ago called Percy's Lad at the horses in training sale, and he'd done very well last season. And um, Richard Farquhar, who's a great supporter of ours, was like, you've got to go and buy another one of these horses. And we were like, well, we haven't really got an owner anyway. So we went out and bought him on spec. And So we didn't have loads of money to spend, and we, we put a huge amount of work into that sale um, to try and find horses that mm. were there. And we came away with him, and we couldn't quite believe... I mean, we as is inevitably the case when you're working with a relatively limited budget, you go into the sale ring hoping you can buy the horse and most of the time being absolutely blown out of the water. If we're, if we're really lucky, we find one that the horse watch, watchers like as well and <laughs> they, just, they just always go one more. And it's, so, um, yeah, anyway, we, nobody else really seemed to want him. I think, I think the underbidder was a guy buying up for a horse for Spain, presumably to go for their big race. So um, for whatever reason, people didn't take to him. I suppose he's a five-year-old and... You know, he's getting on a bit, but I mean, he'd run really well last season, yeah. and you know, all the form was in the book, and it was just a matter of getting that last little bit out of him to get him to produce on these big days because he'd kind of been a nearly horse. Yeah, there was a bit, bit of him, Claire, wasn't there, that was pretty frustrating when Sir Michael had him because he would turn up to all these big races and he'd be favourite pretty much every time, <laughs> and he'd sort of run okay. Yeah, I mean, he was second in the Royal Hunt Cup mm. for Sir Michael Stout, which is phenomenal, uh, and fourth as well. Um, so, as Dan said, the form was there to see, and I think they were just really unlucky. Uh, the few times they'd tried 10 furlongs, he'd like pulled a shoe off in the race or it was soft ground. Um, so we were just able to see, and we understand those bad luck stories. We know what it's like. It's horse racing. Um, so, yeah, we were able to see beyond that. And, yeah, he's turned out great. And we do a genetic test as well, which mm. looks at their muscle type. Um, so he came back very much suggesting he should be able to get 10 furlongs. So it obviously gave us the confidence to try it again is this the gene testing that we know and have heard about or is this something yeah. is this something yeah. different is this the a, the t's and c's yeah yeah so just for those who don't know just explain it to me a little bit uh, so just like humans you've got fast twitch muscle fibers for speed uh, mm -hmm. and slow twitch for the more staying muscle fibers um you the c gene is for the fast twitch and the t is for the slow twitch uh you get one from your mom and one from your dad uh, so you can be a CC, which tends to mean your speed up to a mile. Mm -hmm. uh, so don't tell Claire, she falls into that category. Um, or you can be a CT like Astro King, so you can get a mile to 12 furlongs normally. Um, and then TT is obviously your more staying types uh, and jumpers. And when you gene test a horse and think the horse is quite nice and it comes back with a TT, you're like, oh my God. 
So gonna interesting. Need, gonna need two and a half miles. <laughs> yeah, we found um, the mechanics of the horse, so their stride data and stride frequency, for example, if that suggests they're a speed horse, but then their genome type comes back as a more TT staying type, that mismatch can ultimately mean the horse isn't actually that good uh, because the biomechanics aren't matching up with the internal physiology and of the horse. That's, that's, that's very interesting. I, I, it amazes me, when you explain this to me, it just amazes me why everybody doesn't do it. I think more and more people are. And yeah. I think, you know, with all science and data and research, like, you know, there's loads of it out there and it's finding it, working out how to use it, how to interpret it, and then at the same time looking for what's coming next so that you stay ahead. Because I think, you know, that's the thing is, you know, we, we were doing things five or six years ago now that lots of people are doing. And, mm. and, and you know, it's about trying to think, OK, well, what's, what's on the next horizon? And there's people who are ahead of us, so, you know. But how important is having real clarity of thought when you're trying to interpret the the data insofar as it's aiding you rather than confusing you yeah and i think we always say like the primary thing with any horses is, is the horsemanship it's understanding the horse mm. and the people working around the horse and how do you create a great environment for that horse and to, to do that before you do any of this and then this is just like extra information that can help answer some of the questions where you're not quite sure you know do you go up in trip do you drop back in trip you know those kind of questions that's where it helps is this horse, how do we how do we prepare this horse for a race as opposed to that horse you know how much how, what's the workload required for this horse to get it ready mm. for a race compared to that horse by looking at heart rate and things and it, it all just helps you and you, you you're adding that to the feedback of your riders and the guys working in the yard you know watching the horses are you a scientist jonathan well, not by trade, but I actually went and visited these guys for a feature not that long ago. And similarly to you, I find it incredibly impressive. And it's about these marginal gains, isn't it? If you were to walk into any Premier League football club this morning, all the data, all the fitness figures, all these things that just try and give a team that slight edge. Mm -hmm. And it does make you think, like you say, why, is, why aren't more yards, it sounds like they are, but why aren't more and more yards adopting this sort of... Uh, technology and data because if it's there why not use it and then I think on the flip side if you're an owner it's another layer of detail it's another part of the experience that perhaps you wouldn't get at another yard so and it's clearly the results speak for themselves don't they after yesterday. Claire do you find your owners quite enjoy that side of things do you think they in, they'd like feeling that they're a bit more on top of the game than perhaps owners in other yards. Yeah, I mean, they probably came into horse racing because they've enjoyed the challenge of mm. it, maybe from a betting perspective or from a breeding perspective, and it's all just pieces of a puzzle. You're trying to figure out what that horse needs and wants and trying to breed the champion and great horses like Van Dijk for Kelly. And, you know, it's all just a, a good puzzle to solve and these are just extra pieces to help you. And because you... You have got a, a science degree and you have worked in that field. Does, it, does that help? Oh, massively. Uh, I guess I'm not afraid of the terminology. Um, I thoroughly understand mm. how a body works. I did physiology at Cambridge. Um, I also understand the vets when they're talking about concepts and if they've come across something new uh, with horses. And There's a lot of research done in Australia and in Japan as well. So England's quite behind, really, on Is that it? kind of research. Um, so down in Australia there's a paper all about amino acids and the sweating of racehorses you actually demand more amino acids than what we originally thought and yeah it's getting out there and reading Dan is fantastic at that at taking the initiative and researching and constantly pushing to see what else is out there 
um, and I'm just good at interpreting it. <laughs> <laughs> but are you the are you the the hungrier of the two of you in terms of wanting to know more and reading and reading and reading and reading? I think probably I, I've always been a sort of restless. I suppose a bit of a geek, and yeah, I've always wanted to to read, and I've always loved reading and, and learning and, and and trying to find new things and new ways. And you know, I came to racing from a completely non-racing family, you know, very little to do with horses, really. I mean, my, my, my parents, you know, nothing to do with horses, and it was only sort of further back in the family that, you know, they had farms, and we used to go and spend time, you know, on holidays on the farms and, and muck around with horses. That that's kind of was my experience of horses. And um, so I, I came to racing, I suppose, with very fresh eyes, and, and a lot of what's done is very sort of handed down through generations, and... A lot of it's right and it makes sense and it works, but occasionally, actually, when you go and look at the research, it doesn't match up. I mean, most of the time, the research just backs up what you already know, as it does in any field. But because it's quite a traditional sort of industry, mm. I suppose, and, 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 and the way it's passed on from generation to generation, new thought maybe is at times a bit slower. But, you know, everyone's competitive and they're always looking for a way to, to be better than you know, the competition. I mean, between the two of you, you have worked for just about every big name in global horse racing <laughs> down the years. Who would you say, Claire, is the, apart from yourself and Dan, obviously, who is the most forward-thinking person that you've learned from? Oh, gosh. Who did you think? Question. Or they've actually, they've got it. I've worked for phenomenal people. Um, and as Dan said yesterday, it's not just the people you work for, it's the people you're surrounded with. And it's how you manage teams of people that's mm. phenomenal. Or, you know, I worked as assistant for Jeremy Nasida. He was always very forward-thinking, open to new ideas. Um, I worked for Paddy Gallagher as assistant in California. And he's a true horseman. I mean, incredible. Like, the horse is just number one. Mm -hmm. um, and getting that feel for the horse. Um, it's a huge thing for us is that team environment. When Dan mentioned horsemanship, you need those great people within your team that care so much to get up every day and do all those extra little things to help get those horses out there and winning. So mm. like carrots and polo mints, I mean, they're a big thing in our yard. And uh, Astro King, the day before, we trot up every single horse on, on a Friday. and. He was trotting along, then just slammed on in the middle of the corridor. And we were like, why has he done that? And basically, his work rider was in his stable with a bag of carrots, and he'd clocked it. <laughs> so he just slammed on. So we joked that Mark should have stood after the finish line on Saturday with a bag of carrots. But I'm not sure he was up to being charged at by 34 horses. <laughs> but it's all those little things, isn't it, that you, yeah. you kind of get inside the horse, you understand exactly. the horse, you yeah. know their personality. And he clearly is a bit of a personality. Now, yeah. you were at Newmarket yesterday. I saw a lovely interview with Lydia after the race. Um, you were at Haydock. Yeah. How did this happen? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we had Helm Rock uh, also running in a really nice race up at Haydock mm. um, and just really loyal, supportive owners involved in him uh, that mean the world to us. Uh, you know, our owners are just, we've supported by incredible people and it was nice to go up there mm. and, you know, obviously we're hoping to win with him as well. Um, but yeah, we actually all celebrated and watched the race of Astro together, which was amazing. My parents were there as well. Yeah, so. I was going to say it wasn't a homing instinct because the, nor the North West the is, North your, West is, home, is yeah. your manner really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And it poured with rain, which is what I expected. <laughs> so it all went as planned. Yes. <laughs> and so you were at Haydock in the owners and trainers. Watching, yeah, yeah. watching the race. Yeah. Did you have? A, did the support crowd grow and grow and grow <laughs> yeah. as you got nearer and yeah, nearer? Yeah, there the was line? a lot of champagne after and uh, quite a few tears. So it was lovely. Would you like to watch it again? 
Why yes. not? <laughs> 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 We've been making them wait long enough, to be fair. And it, I always think, Jonathan, you kind of watch this, you sort of half know what's going on. But luckily, we're watching the horse who's nearest to you in the red and white stripe colours with the, with the black cap, Astro King. Um, Dan, what were you thinking immediately the stalls opened? I was quite happy because he can be a little bit slow away, and, but that's something that's improved since he's been with us. And, um, and I was happy he'd gone down to the start really nicely and been very quiet behind the stalls because his first couple of starts for us, he got a bit wound up. But that, again, he's kind of relaxed and settled and it's all helped. And Richard was very helpful and conscious. And here I was very happy because, you know, they're going along at a good clip and, you know, he's travelling along comfortably and he's not, you know, was happy here. And I suppose towards the middle of the race you already start seeing a couple niggling along and you're just sort of looking back and he's sitting there travelling the only thing I was worried about was obviously we're right against the rail and there's a huge wall of horses to our outside and you're thinking mm. are we going to get a gap and then here you're going well now what's happening <laughs> this is it I mean goodness um, only knows yeah and this is where Richard's trying Claire yeah. to sort of angle out from underneath yeah, I mean, he kept it really simple. I mean, he was so professional, Richard, beforehand. Um, and that gives you great confidence when you're jockeys like that. And it's having that belief in himself and the horse to wait for the gap to come. Uh, and then he eased him in here, gradually building up, building him up. Um, and then, obviously, finally, in the final two, really go for it. And the one thing we've loved about Astro King is his attitude. When he is competing alongside another horse, he just is so game and keeps finding. Um, I know Roger and Harry Charlton's horse had a, you know, an uneasy passage in the final one and a half furlongs, but actually I think when Astro eyeballed him here now, he just found again. Um, and he always just keeps a little bit off his sleeve, Astro, I think, for those scenarios. Mm. <laughs> um, there were plenty of people rather aggrieved at the, at the passage through of Greek order. Jonathan, do you think it made the difference between defeat and victory? We got Roger Charlton on the show later. He might, he might tell us. <laughs> yeah, he's probably a better place to, to say whether it was it made the difference. I think it's just that's what's going to happen in a, in a race of this nature. He had his run. He had plenty of time. He looked as though he was coming with a winning run and just didn't quite find in the same way as the winner. I don't, I don't think it's really a hard luck story. Uh, he was a little bit short of racing room and but that, that's how it goes with the draw and everything else. And it's interesting, I was actually talking to Harry Charlton the day before, Claire, and sort of saying, well, you can have a stone and a half in hand in a race like this if you think you've got a group one horse, but you still need the street wisdom to be able to get out there and do it with 34 other horses around you. Yeah, and I think horses, as they grow and develop, they not only get physically stronger, they get mentally stronger as well and learn to compete in those situations. And obviously Astro King is a robust horse that's done it and been there and knows exactly what's being asked of him. Um, I mean, obviously, for Roger and Harry, they've got a phenomenal horse in their hands as well, and he'll just keep getting better and better. It's very exciting for them. There you are, Pink Cap, just locked in up behind horses at the moment, Greek order, but Astro King making his merry way down the stands rail. Is, is there any point to me asking what's next? What are you going to do with him now? Uh, the plan uh, we penciled in a couple of months ago, if we kept going up the handicap enough, is to go out to Bahrain uh, for the international trophy. Um, so I think we're going to be good enough now to get over there, which is such an exciting prospect for the owners. They're just in awe that they're even considering going out there for a race like this. And that's Norman celebrating. Um, yeah, again, a fantastic owner with Lofty and Graham.
Um, we need to move on and, and have a little look back on some of the rest of the action from yesterday. We'll start with Van Dijk's romp in the middle park. Romp it was. Um, this was a, a wonderful performance to watch. Uh, improving, you'd say, on his victory in the pre-morning under his new pilot, James Doyle. And there wasn't really a, a moment's doubt, was there, Jonathan? No, I, I was hugely impressed by this performance. I mean... Britain sort of needed a standout two-year-old. I think Ireland had a bit of a stranglehold on that, and this was just the way he accelerated into the race and then kicked clear was hugely impressive. Um, James Doyle coming off and suggesting maybe sprinting will be his game. I'd, I'd imagine they'll at least try uh, stepping up in trip at some point, probably, well, perhaps even next time in the, in the Dewhurst. He does look a sprinter to the eye, but you never mm. know. It's, an, it's a brilliant problem to have. Um, what would the gene test come back with Van Dijk? Would he be a, a CC, do you think? But it, you would think so, but you, know, you don't know until you do. I mean, because of, quite often you can have recessive things that, you know, mm. if you're out of a CT mare that maybe ran over six furlongs, then you never know. But, I mean, to look at him, you, you would think that he'd give seven a go, wouldn't you? Well, Either the Dewhurst or the Fred Darling and, and, and try it. Or the, you mean the Greenham? Greenham, sorry. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Claire, when you look at him move as an athlete, what does he look like to you in terms? Because you look an, analyse stride and so forth. Yeah, um, he actually sold at the December yearling sale and we didn't go last year because we'd kind of already spent up and I'm gutted we didn't get to go and see him. Um, yeah, he, he's a lovely horse. I mean, the cruising speed he's got is phenomenal and then the ability to quicken off that is very special. Um, and I was just saying before, Kelly and a family who bred him. We Kelly actually, Thomas. Yeah, yeah, we actually know them, and just so pleased for them um, to have bred a horse like him is what dreams are made of. And of course, as has been pointed out widely, Jonathan, he was a breeze up purchase this year for north of six hundred thousand. Yes. When he produced the fastest breeze out of whatever, and as Stuart Williams put it on this show the day that he won the pre morning, well, I'm going to be interested in Van Dijk this afternoon because he's already won a. 198 horse race by four lengths or whatever it was. Yeah, I mean it's always difficult, isn't it, when you when you're dealing with price tags like that. There is a certain element of expectation, and he's living up to it, and potentially even more. I think he's a, he's a top class colt. It was definitely a weekend where two trainers were better than one. Dan and Claire proved it. Harry and Roger Charlton proved it with time lot. Uh, we had wins for John and Thady Gosden. Simon and Ed Crisford, though, they had a wonderful day yesterday. And this is Ed talking to Lydia after Van Dijk's triumph. It was special. Uh, you know, he jumped a little bit slow, but that's his sort of trait. And we were slightly worried because the pace was, seems to be holding up um, yesterday and today. But he, he just travelled so good. And when that gap came, I mean, he was electric. And, you know, that impressive turn of foot kicked in. And, he, I mean, yeah, it was a superb run. And he's also asked a question about different ground as well. What's that in your mind coming in today? Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, he's Havannah Gray, Adam Exceeding XL Mare. And, mo you know, most of Havannah Grays tend to run on quicker surfaces. Um, but, of course, he's only ever won on soft ground, so that's always in the back of your mind. We walked the track this morning. But, you know, Michael's done a great job. He's put three mil on. It's a lovely racing surface. Good to firm. But we, we weren't too concerned. And, you know, actually, that's when you see the horses with a proper ton of foot when it's ground like this, and, and he showed that today. Yeah, and it suggests he's, he's pretty good to be able to do it every which way. Right, now, immediately afterwards, we've got quotes for three races, the Dewhurst and two races next year. Let's start with the Dewhurst. Might you be tempted to try the seven here? I, I think you never can say never, but let's just see all the horses this week. 
I think he'll tell us. If he's in the same form as he is today in two, two weeks, I'm, I'm sure there'll be a conversation. Okay. So you think he... Well, no, this is going to lead to the next question. So uh, to the other two quotes were 7-1 to one for the 2,000 guineas and 6-1 to one for the Commonwealth Cup. I'm giving you a notional £10. Which race are you putting it on? I'll, I'll take the sixes all day long. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we thought. That's what we thought. You see him as a sprinter, surely. Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, you, you're winning two big six furlong races as a two-year-old and, and that turn of foot you know suggests he's, he's probably more sprinter i'm sure he'll get seven but a mile on this track well we'll see but no it's uh but nice just to celebrate the win today what a day for the christmas it was going to get better last night with algiers in the woodward stakes at aqueduct that's been delayed because of the storm in New York, uh, we were just musing while we were listening to Ed Crisford there as to what has made Havana Gray such a sensation as a stallion. And you were putting forward quite an interesting theory. I was talking to um, Chris Harper a few weeks ago, who has Wishery Manor Stud, and I mean, Ed, his son, really runs it now. And um, he was just saying that, you know, all that's happened, you've, you've got Galileo obviously imparted immense toughness into all his horses, mm. and, but obviously, you know, much more of a stamina bred horse. but. Havana Gold, the sire of Havana Gray, was out of a very quick mare, Jessica's Dream, and then um, uh, the dam of Havana Gray um, was again a quick mare, Dark Angel. So you've just been adding speed and speed and speed. So you've kind of got all the speed coming through the bottom, and then this sort of mental toughness, this fortitude, this will to run that's come through the sire line, I think. And you do sort of see that in horses, and it's really interesting working with families, and you kind of, and that's, you know, that's something that's quite difficult to measure, these genetic. The sort of heritability mm. of, you know, the horse is trying, I suppose, and, and that's something you have to read at home a little bit. And, and you know, I think that's why some stallions stand out more than others because it's that's what they're passing on that's giving them the edge. And you know, some stallions, their stock will be very trainable. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're, they're easy to get along with and, and, and work with, and that's going to give them every opportunity to get more winners because they're going to have less of those horses that are just difficult. And because you guys are quite innovative thinkers relative to a lot of people in racing I wonder whether you still are of the mindset where you would strike a stallion out because you've had a bad experience with one of his progeny when you go to their sales or would you try and look at every horse afresh so we view stallions ultimately they were all exceptional racehorses to achieve the ratings to become a stallion in the mm -hmm. first place you had to have been exceptional um, and with the budgets that we have to play then we focus more on the dam side um, and are willing to accept pretty much any stallion. Um, so when a stallion goes out of fashion, we actually rub our hands in glee because it gives us an opportunity to actually uh, buy into those horses. So, well, yeah, uh, the dam is a really big the variable, I guess. You know, you can have dams rated 50, dams rated 110. And for us, it's finding those angles. As Dan mentioned, the heritability, the genetic, what goes on inside the horse, you can't tell when you're mm. at the sales. So Astro King, his heart rate recovery, and we found it now with the really good horses we've trained, is their heart rate recoveries after a gallop are exceptional. Um, yeah, I mean, half as quick as the other yeah, horses you train. Really? And that is just, you know, they've got a stronger heart, or is it they've got more red blood cell capacity, or they just got more efficient lungs. And there's so many reasons why, but obviously it is definitely... A yeah, that sort of recovery, it's... It's not that the other horses don't recover, but it's just that they're able to achieve recoveries that are so much quicker than an ordinary horse. So, mm. You know, a 70-rated handicapper, he might go and do his piece of work, and they might do... 
you know. It'd take a minute and a half to recover. Might a minute, and it would have been a, a less intense piece of work than a horse like Astro King, but that, that innate athletic ability, you, you know, it's just some, you know, some horses just got more of it than others. Same as humans. Yeah. You know, what yeah. makes those Olympic athletes yeah. so yeah. special? Yeah. And you get tall, fast humans, you get short, fast humans, you get fast, big horses, you get uh, fast, little ones. Porsche Fortuna is a, a pretty fast, little one. Uh, and she won the um, Chigley Park Stakes yesterday, Group 1, for Donica O'Brien. And for Sheen Murphy, who'd nominated this as the ride he was most looking forward to of the week. And he had a pretty good book of rides, and he was absolutely spot on. Um, Dan, I thought she did quite well here, because she was sort of threatened to be marooned from where she was positioned and the way the stalls split, but... Uh, Sheen got her over on the on the right side, and she raced with great enthusiasm. Yeah, I mean, I I, I thought she was actually quite quite impressive, and I mean, the time was quick. I mean, I think was was the time actually slightly quicker than Van Dijk's, and you know, like this wasn't a, a no relief rally didn't run, but it probably actually was you know, quite quite a good performance. And you know, she's not the biggest horse in the world, and I think she's going to America, and you know, but she's out of a Holy Roman Emperor mare, and they often aren't very big, um, but they do. I'm trying to think of the horse that Aiden had that won the Guineas that was like 14-2 or something. You know, you sort of, you know, we've got a horse at home out of the Holy Roman Emperor and everyone thought, thought she wouldn't train. Was it homecoming team. queen? Yes, she was very small, wasn't she? Exactly. Um, so I, I think, you know, you can get, if a horse is very efficient and got a lot of heart, they, they, they can train on. So you know, it'll be interesting to see what she does next year. I thought the second, I know she's tried further, but looked like a horse that maybe... Next year, Strolls and Rubies a bit. Mm. Could, could be. You know, I didn't want to get all the pearls and rubies mixed up. <laughs> <laughs> but I know she's out of diamonds and rubies, yeah. and she is pearls and rubies. And yeah. It's bred to get a little bit further. Donica O'Brien, um, big triumph for him yesterday. And he's on the line now. Morning, Donica. Morning, Nick. How are you? Uh, tremendous. This was a, a really impressive performance. The more you watch it, the more you can't help be taken by what seems to be a real tenacity with this, this filly. She must be a really enjoyable horse to train. Yeah, absolutely. Look, she's just, she's just a very good feeling. Um, you know, yesterday was the first day she had quick counts in Dascot, um, and that she seems to be at her best uh, with that. So she was very impressive yesterday, um, and you said she's just a very good uh, Harry filly. Um, has, she, has she always shown you that talent? When you first got her, was she flashing talent early? Yeah, she was. She was she always, always shown a lot. Uh, she went to the Curra um, heavy ground first time and won nicely. And uh, she's done nothing but progress from there. So, you know, she's got plenty of size and scope. So, hopefully, she'll keep improving. And how long has the Breeders' Cup been on your mind? Um, well, I suppose since she was bought after her maiden uh, by, by um, you know, some American people, Barry Fowler, Steve Weston, Dean Reeves, and uh, Medallion Thoroughbred. So, I suppose after that, it was always going to be the plan if she could reach that level. What attributes do you think she's got that would be particularly well suited to, to that race at Santa Anita? Yeah, well, she's very uncomplicated. Um, you know, she jumps, she travels, and she has a ton of foot as well. You can never be sure until you go to America whether they'll, you know, adapt well to it or not. But, you know, I, I think there's a good chance she will. And, and yesterday, I mean, it looked all very straightforward. Is that exactly what you were expecting? You thought, right, we've got nice ground. She'll just go there and, and, and accomplish the mission with no fuss today. You can never be too confident in a group one, you know. Uh, they're very good fillies, um, you know, all tough races. But, you know, it was, it was quite similar to Ascot. She kept, kept it simple on her. Um, and, you know, to be honest, she never really looked in doubt throughout the whole race. And we were talking about, you know, what she might do next year because she's so sort of straightforward now and she's been such a good two-year-old. How hopeful are you that she can, she can move on at three? 
Yeah, look, she, she's plenty scope. Um, she's not the tallest filly, but she's plenty plenty length. Um, Oshin, you know, was quite confident that she would uh, be able to progress. So you can never be sure until until you go and do it. Um, but I'd be very hopeful that she could progress and be a top class filly at three as well. How far do you think she'll run? Uh, we're going to try the mile at the Breeders' Cup, you know, and that'll be that'll give us a guide. Um, I suppose sometimes you can you can get away with going further at two than you can at three for whatever reason. So you know we'll feel our way with her. I, I suppose maybe start her over seven at three and and take it from there. Really pleased to welcome to Luck on Sunday for the first time, um, author uh, Tony Lynette, also racehorse owner, who's uh, chronicled his journey in shared ownership through a horse called Free Love with three volumes, the latest of which, Farewell to Free Love, has just been published. Tony, yeah, thanks so much, for, yeah. so much for coming in. Um, for those who aren't familiar, just take us just back to the beginning of this journey with, with this horse and, and why you have chosen to, to chronicle it. Um, I've always been really interested in, in racing and the idea of owning a racehorse was, was the dream. Uh, when I started off, in my late teens and early 20s, the idea of being a racehorse owner seemed totally unattainable. Mm. Um, figures were astronomical. There were owners like Robert Sangster, Sheikh Mohammed, and it just seemed to be a sport where it was rich people who owned horses, and I could never achieve that. But as, as I you know, grew into the sport, I realised that there were other forms of ownership, and um, syndicates, partnerships, they began to become more important 20 years ago. And the idea of actually owning a racehorse didn't seem to be so absurd. So there was this plot, this plan with um, four other friends that we would, you know, when we paid off the mortgages, when we got the kids through university and so on, that we would buy a racehorse mm -hmm. and we would do the whole thing ourselves. We would source um, a yearling at the sales. We'd get a trainer to help us. We'd name the horse, buy our own racing colours. We'd do the whole thing, the whole shebang. Um, which we did with a filly called Free Love, a little 10,000 uh, 10, guinea bargain basement buy at the Book 3 sales in 2017. Um, and when I retired, I decided that I would like to write about the experience. I fancied the idea of writing something, mm. and it seemed the most natural thing to do, to write from personal experience and to write about my passion for horse racing and how I finally managed to gate-crash the ownership party. And so you, you started writing, and this coincided Free Love's career with the, with the pandemic? Yes, well, Free, Free Love had a, uh, um, uh, you know, a, a carefree season as a, a two-year-old, mm. but then uh, after that, when I started this third and final book, um, we more or less hit the first lockdown a month after I started writing it. And what I've chronicled is the experience of racehorse enthusiasts and owners during a period of lockdown, and then a period when uh, racing was very restricted. Owners weren't allowed to go racing to begin with, and when they were allowed to go racing, it was only two at a time. Turn up half an hour before the race, mask up, leave immediately after the race. Maybe how quickly we've forgotten this, isn't it? It is. And actually, Nick, when I read a little bit of the book last night in preparation to come into this show, um, I was struck by the surreal nature of what I was reading. Um, we've all forgotten about it. But, you know, all the temperature checks on the gates, the segregated areas not allowed into the paddock, not allowed to, you know, meet your trainer and jockey and so on. 
it's it's forgotten. But um, did you feel it was an important bit of history to document that if you didn't write it, people would forget what it was like? I, I'm I'm glad I've documented it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because I think that it is our, in our nature to try and forget things, try and push bad experiences behind us, move on. Um, I'm optimistic by nature. That's 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 how I approach life. Um, but it has chronicled that whole period and how difficult it was um, for everyone generally. But it looks at the pandemic really through the lens of um, grassroots resource owners. Mm. And for you, this shared experience was a, an extraordinary one and one that, that touched you all very deeply, it, it seems. Can you try and work out why that is? I think... Once, once you get involved with resource ownership, uh, and I would encourage um, anyone who's got an interest in, in, in racing to somehow get involved. You can do it with a £50 microshare, mm-hmm. um, or you can do something that, that we did, which is obviously more expensive, more ambitious. Um, but once you start getting involved and you visit the stables and you see your horse on the gallops and you're building up towards the, the, the debut, you know, when you buy a yearling, you, you buy into a dream, don't you? Yes. The horse could be anything. Until um, <laughs> they actually run, um, so you get closer and closer to the horse. You get closer to the people who are involved with horses, the trainers, the stable staff, jockeys, and it's just such an immersive experience. It it gave all of us so much pleasure. I've tried to somehow capture that pleasure in these books. Um, what sort of hole in your in your life has free love not being on the racecourse anymore left? Well, it, 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 I became incredibly attached to the filly. Um, I mean, that is, that is very evident. Yeah, uh, and, you know, her, her, her racing career ended with injury and we did everything we could to make sure that she had a healthy and happy retirement, you know, so we nursed her through a long period um, when she wasn't very well at all um, because I felt a responsibility and I also felt really attached to the filly. So there was a tremendous bond build-up. Um, I'm not sure whether the other owners would say that their bond with the filly was as intense as mine. Mm. Um, but nevertheless, you can't help but become attached to your, to your racehorse and become very loyal to your racehorse, very defensive about your racehorse. Um, so, yes, it was a big loss when she finally uh, left my life, but I know that she's in good hands, and I know that she's actually produced a filly foal by Sergei Prokofiev. Uh, and... Are you going to try and get a hold of the bit of <laughs> What a great idea, Nick. What a great idea. Yes. Well, How's I that project I did mention that to my wife, Jenny. And she, and what she, does she say? Uh, well, she just rolled her eyes. I, I mean, I think once you've been involved with, with uh, racehorse ownership, it is addictive. It is a bit of a drug. I've got a small share in a cheap racehorse um, who's with Dominic French Davis. Mm-hmm. And um, he's a 40-rated... Uh, two-year-old handicapper and I'm not sure whether he's going to amount to anything at all but we all love him we love going out to see him on the gallops at Lambourne and so on so it's it's all rather addictive once you get into it you just want more and more of it really and and these books aren't just stories about horses they're stories about how your fortunes in racehorse ownership dovetail with everybody's fortunes through through life yeah Uh, this book is uh, in aid of the Bob Champion Cancer Trust as well, which has raised so much money since Bob set it up in in 1981. And you yourself have had a a cancer diagnosis. So um, everybody will want to know how you're doing at the moment. Yeah. 
Well, um, at the moment, touch wood, um, I, I've been going through a reasonably good patch during the summer. Um, I have been really ill with it. Unfortunately, I do have a, a terminal diagnosis. Um, I had an out-of-the-blue um, kidney cancer diagnosis, had to have my right kidney removed. I was then told that it had spread to my lungs and I could be treated but not cured. I then developed a very large brain tumour that required another major piece of surgery. There have been times when I've been very, very ill down and wondered whether you know, that was the end of the road. But touch wood, uh, last six months, things have been quite stable. Mm-hmm. I am realistic. I'm not going to be cured. We are talking about um, you know, limited lifespan. I was told um, in December 2021 that I would have about two years. Um, so come this December, um, you know, I'm into added time, I suppose you could say, in football parlance. But um, you know, I feel okay at the moment. Um, my wife Jenny has been fantastically supportive. Um, things I can't do that I used to be able to do, Nick, the, the, the brain tumour has affected my vision. I'm not allowed to drive anymore. So the idea of just jumping into the car and driving up to Newmarket mm-hmm. or driving to Lambourne, I have to rely on uh, Jenny to do the chauffeuring. But she stepped up to the plate. She's been fantastic. Um, so at the moment, I'm in, I'm in a pretty good place. You know, I've good days, bad days. If I you know, have a, a day where I go racing or charging around the country, maybe the next day I'm on the sofa. But... Um, you know, uh, I, I just have to take, uh, and that's an old cliche, but I just have to take each day as it comes, really, and just uh, carry on and be as positive as I possibly can be. And it strikes me as, well, you've said you're a very optimistic person. Mm. Everybody's body's different and everybody's mm. body reacts differently to, yeah. to cancer. But um, do you feel in yourself that your, your own mental approach to it has, has helped you physically? Uh, yeah, probably has, but I, I don't want to give the impression that I just bounce through life, no. you know, and it's, you know, I'm just swimming away on this sea of positivity. It's, you know, there are days where, you know, you, you, you wonder, you know, why has this hand been dealt to me? And there are days where you, you're not feeling very well at all. So it'd be ridiculous if, I, if there weren't times when I didn't feel a bit down about my predicament. But... Um, I'm, I'm buoyed up by my, my family, buoyed up by friends, and I just keep going, keep my interest in horse racing, keep going racing, keep, keep being involved, and um, just try to do as much as I can. And the, the racing interest, is it is intensified? It's as intense as ever, yeah. for sure, yeah. And I couldn't imagine... Um, not having a share of some description in, in a horse. Um, I think once you start, <laughs> there's no way back. And it got you hard, and it got you early. And I'm left mm. wondering, really, if, if there'd been a, a... or if you'd taken a different fork in the road, whether you would have ended up being the head of a primary school, and, in fact, you might have ended up running a race course or... I don't, I don't know. ...training them or... I really don't know. I, I, I did try to crash into racing when I was very young. I was telling your very nice runner outside that my, my first job after university was a five-year stint in greyhound racing. Um, I, I really would have liked to have got into racing somehow, but, you know, events took me on a different course. Um, I've no regrets at all about ending up in teaching. I, I worked for a charity that uh, did work in schools. I went into schools. I enjoyed the environment. I thought this could be somewhere where I'd be really happy at work. 
and I had nearly 30 years in teaching and it was a great career. Would you do it again if you were in your early 30s or late 20s now and um, there was a, a career as a, as a primary school teacher ending up in headship, would you, would you do it again in today's, in today's climate? That's a very difficult question because I think that um, I think the professions just continue to get tougher and tougher. Um, great demands on, on, on teachers, lot, lots expected of them. Um, by far the hardest job I've ever done, you know. Um, but the, the, the satisfactions are great. Mm. You know, it's, it's very, very rewarding. When, when things happen in school and you know you've done something really positive to help an individual child or a group of children, it gives you great satisfaction. And that's not something you can necessarily guarantee in other walks of life. Did you ever manage to get horse racing on the, <laughs> on the curriculum in <laughs> your I school? I remember in when Bexley. I was a very young teacher in, in, in <laughs> Dartford and it was Derby Day and the curriculum was less formal then. Um, I decided we were going to have a morning and we were going to have a look at the history of the Epsom Derby and we were going to have a look at um, horse racing, its history. We were going to have a look at colours that jockeys why, wear. Why, and, weren't and so we, why weren't we taught by this man? <laughs> no, we had none of that. <laughs> no one ever did anything like that. Yeah, but I don't think I would get away with it nowadays. A more formal curriculum, a bit more prescriptive. I think there'd be, <laughs> there'd be less option for that type of uh, approach. But when you see the kids on the racing to school trips yeah, yeah, that they do, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that it, it, it seems to encompass an enormous, enormous amount of the of the curriculum. Yeah, no, I, I got involved with that briefly. I, I did a, a little bit of voluntary work, uh, turned up and had a look at um, racing to school events and the type of learning they were trying to promote. Um, yeah, and it was really valuable, really interesting, and the response from the children was, was fantastic. Mm. And have you had any of your former pupils? Ask for a copy of your book. <laughs> I've had parents. Good. I've had parents, yes. Quest Amour, drawing clear on the run to the line, and Quest Amour makes all to win the Lonsdale Cup. Cityscape is giving them something to catch past the 100 metres mark. Mudahadi's run to second. City Style is third, but Cityscape, a big, big winner. Cityscape wins the Dubai duty free. They've got now 50 yards to go, and Al Kazim wins the Coral Eclipse. Decorated night wins for Robert Carton and Andrea Cini. They backed this like defeat was out of question. It was with Hold is powering to the line. He's won it in sensational style. Quadrilateral coming together with a late flourish on the far side. Quadrilateral, Jason Watson, just a powerful breeze. And that really is only scratching the surface, tip of the iceberg, call it what you will, of the training career of Roger Charlton, which has been the training career of Roger and Harry Charlton uh, latterly. And, of course, they teamed up with Group Race Victory with Time Lock a couple of days ago. What a lovely filly she looks. And yesterday, narrowly denied with a heavy favourite Greek order in the Cambridgeshire. And it is quite extraordinary, welcome, Roger, that we... We spoke on Friday. I'd spoken to Dan and Claire earlier in the week, and I watched the race, and there they are flashing past the post together. <laughs> um, to their delight, I'm sure, and your somewhat frustration. How do you feel about yesterday, first of all? Um, I could see why he was favourite going into it, because his profile looked good, and his 
um, performance at Newbury was impressive. But, you know, it was a small field. He was able to be relaxed at the back. He came wide up straight. He understandably went up 10 pounds. I think time form had him rated well clear of the others, mm. or a few pounds clear of the others. So he was obvious favourite. I thought he was very short in the market, to be honest, for a 33 or 34 runner race to be 3 to 1 or whatever price was. I thought was much too short, really. But he ran a great race. And, you know, that was, I think, his seventh race. So he's inexperienced compared to a lot of those horses. I think he's going to develop into a really nice horse. And I was pleased yesterday he actually settled well, which had been a problem before. And he walked around, he looked magnificent in the paddock. He's a proper big son of Kingman. Mm. And um, your son, Harry, I was speaking to on, on Friday afternoon, and he was saying it was very obvious from when he came in that he was kind of top of the class. Yeah. I mean, you, you get to sort of this time of the year with two-year-olds, and you, you, you're always looking for something to arrive. And um, he always worked like a really good horse. And I, you know, it's silly to think you may have a guineas horse at that stage, but he did work really well. And then we went to... Uh, to Newmarket and uh, no, we went to Salisbury and got beaten favourite and then we went to Newmarket and Charlie Appleby beat us oh well that's probably a really good horse and blah 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 so it was a bit disappointing really to be fair but um, you know that happens a bit and um, I think it, it's coming good now and I think if he um, you know if he runs again we'll step him up back to 10 furlongs which I think is really what the trip he wants and I think ideally he doesn't want the ground quite as quickly, quick as it was yesterday. Now, I said before the break that you had some important news for us. You were Roger Charlton. You have been Roger and Harry Charlton. Next season, it's going to be... Harry Charlton. So you are... I don't know what you... What are you doing? You're, I was going to say you're retiring, <laughs> but people hate that. Well, so. I've, I got a message just now from Steve Drown, who, as you know, is a stipe. Uh, sorry to hear, boss, that you're, you're retiring. And so I quickly got back to that. I'm actually not retiring because I like working. Um, what we're doing is that, uh, as you know, we had a joint licence. Mm -hmm. um, dis I discussed it with Harry as to whether a joint licence was the right approach, and we thought it was, that you have a sort of seamless transition and that um, some of the owners get to know him better. Um, I think it's right now. He's um, extremely experienced, very able and bright person and um, I think it's right for him to, to hold the license. I think it's right for Beckhampton image to have a slightly younger image going forwards and so we thought the end of this season it was a sensible thing to do. It was just a question of when, when it was going to actually be announced. I have managed to ring up all the owners already. Um, but, you know, I'm not going anywhere, and I've been there, I think, 45 years and really doing the same thing, and I've been training for 33 years or something. Um, you know, I'm not going to suddenly not get up in the morning. I mm. like doing it. I yeah. like horses. I love going around evening staples every day, and I love going out in the downs, and I like sitting on a tractor and mowing the grass and doing everything that... Um, to keep Beckhampton going. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing piece of history in that I think it's now 200 years old for training, and I think that, I think that Harry will be the eighth trainer in those wow. 200 years. So, you know, we've all, we've all had a good stint. Um, 
and obviously my predecessors have been incredibly famous and, and very good trainers. Is that something you always felt, that sense of custodianship? Yeah. You, yeah. you felt you were just looking after it for the next person? Yeah, I think so, because, um, you know, I think life is full of chances, and, and I happen to be lucky that Jeremy Tree asked me, you know, I'd had a, a bit of a stint in the, in the city, and then I came down and I um, started the swimming pool in Lambourne, and then uh, Nicky Henderson bought it, was desperate to find a yard, and, you know, I was half heading back to the, to the city until Jeremy Tree said that he was wanting an assistant and that, um, you know, wanted younger people. And I, I sort of coincided, luckily, very luckily, with Prince Khaled and Judmont because I think the second or third year I was there, they bought four yearlings, mm -hmm. and as we know, it's progressed enormously since then. And, and was, uh, was Rainbow Quest one of those when you were there? Yeah, he was very yeah. much there. I mean, I think known fact was the, the sec second crop. We had a big grey horse called Marzouk, who Lester Piggott won a two-mile maiden at York once, and, and Prince Khaled was there. Um, but, you know, that was the first crop, I think, and Alia. There were some, you know, and then and we... You know, there were, some, there were some good horses, and it really lifted the stable, as you'd expect, mm. with a boost like that. And I think at one stage, Jeremy had the pick of the, the yearlings, and, you know, one year he took 28 yearlings, wow. and they were proper horses. And, you know, we probably only had 60 horses in those days, so it was, you know, blue-blooded stuff. So it wasn't difficult for the, for the fortunes, but... Timing was really lucky for me, actually. It was one of those sort of great sliding doors moments, really. I, I do wonder whether, had it not been for that, you'd have still found your way to doing this, like water finds its course. Yeah. I mean, I always wanted to be a trainer. I mean, I found a, a rather badly written letter to my parents when I was 16, <laughs> saying, could I leave school early? And, you know, do I have to do A-levels and all that sort of thing? Because all I want to be is a trainer. And my father said, well, you know, you can't possibly afford to be a trainer. So I did a sort of stint in Australia. I actually went as a... There's been a programme recently called the £10 POM. I actually went to Australia as a £50 POM. I migrated there, and I spent um, nearly two years in Australia until I got slightly spooked by the idea that um, they were drafting Australians into fight in Vietnam War. And because you give up your passport when you're there, I hadn't become an Australian citizen, obviously, and we were working out in the bush, and, you, you know, you didn't have internet, you didn't have mobile telephones, mm. you don't know what's going on. And I got a bit spooked by the idea of um, actually going to fight in, in Vietnam and thinking, do I really want to do that? So I came back before the two years up and did a stint in Hong Kong and so on and so forth. But um, I always wanted to be a trainer, but it was just a question I never really thought I was going to have the opportunity to do it. And had that been because you'd, you'd always been around horses? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I lived on a farm and my father had horses and I got taken out of school one day uh, to ride in a point to point age 16 and the headmaster was frightfully grumpy about it. And my father said, it's ridiculous. It should, he should see it as a good thing that you're going to ride in a point to point. Anyway, the headmaster... So in the end, we didn't tell him. We just snuck off and hoped that one didn't break a collarbone or do something silly. But no, I loved riding. And I guess when one's young, one sort of dreamed of winning the Grand National. Mm. That never quite happened. You, you did get quite a long way up the, up no, the riding ladder. No, not really. 
Um, again, I got well, lucky. You won a Cheltenham Festival race. Yes, I know, but I mean, I think I only had four winners or something, and that was one of them. We haven't got it, I'm afraid. I know, I'd love to see it. I don't think it exists. Uh, it, it was very heavy ground that year. It's 60... 69. And, uh, and a certain John Oaksey um, was second on line burner for Bob oh. Tunnell. Were you, I mean, was it expected to win? No, not really. Um, so it's the Kim Muir? Yeah. yeah. Edward Courage, who uh, owned and bred mm -hmm. a lot of lovely horses, happened to live um, four miles down the road. And during the school holidays, I used to bicycle down there and ride out. And there were people like David Nicholson and wonderful people and the Spanish Steps and Royal Relief and sort of good horses. And I used to be allowed to ride these wonderful horses and I used to lead them schooling and all that sort of thing. And then along came a horse called Pride of Kentucky. Um, and he wasn't a great jumper. In fact, one or two of the better jockeys had been unseated. But anyway, that day at Cheltenham, the ground was very heavy and he jumped from fence to fence. And um, we had a dream run round. I think I'd probably look pretty pretty um, amateurish, but anyway, the horse won. Um, and I think I did 10 stone three, probably. And I hadn't eaten, certainly hadn't drunk much, but I hadn't eaten for probably nearly a week. And um, I remember two days before the race, um, I lived down in Chepstone, worked for Colin Davis, who had Persian War, struggling to get out of bed to do evening stables. So I felt so weak, and I thought, well, I think I've overdone the, the wasting a bit here, so I had to sort of boost up a bit. But um, we got there, and then after the race, um, there must have been a group of Irishmen that backed Pride of Kentucky, and I got sort of hoisted off to a sort of bar where there were lots of neat whiskies and drinks, and, and I ended you, up you on all complete, fours. a complete hero. Com complete sort of knockout, and got rescued by a certain Charles Barnett, who <laughs> was famous for running the Grand National that nearly wasn't. Absolutely brilliant. And you never yeah. rode around Aintree? I, I jumped one fence uh -huh. at Aintree. Uh, uh, this horse then went to the Topham. Right. And I walked the course in the morning. I stayed in a boarding house the night before. I walked the course rather nervously, like I am, in the morning. <laughs> these are massive, these fences. And I bumped into Fred Rymel, who was walking the course. And he always saw this lanky, ashen-faced youth. Um, and he said, I know what you need. So we went to this bar. And he gave me a glass of champagne about 10 o'clock in the morning. He said, he said, most jockeys need this before they run in the Grand National. And it, it, you know, the effervescence kind of fills you up and you get a bit braver. Anyway, we got the first fence and I got unseated. <laughs> so my claim is I'd actually landed on, I mean, I did actually jump a fence. Jump but one, that, that jump was one it. Fence.